This week on a lively experiment, Governor McKee's first 100 days in office will break out the scorecard for how he's done. And the home stretch to the General Assembly begins next week. Part two of our interview with House Speaker Joe Sicarci. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Billy Hunt, chairman of the Libertarian Party of Rhode Island, Republican strategist Lisa Pelosi, and political contributor Scott McKay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. You may be surprised that Dan McKee has been governor for 100 days, but those of us covering him certainly are not. He has announced what day it is of his administration at virtually every public event these past three months. It's a subtle reminder that he's still new to the job, even though he is a familiar name in state government. Scott McKay, by my count, this is the ninth governor I don't know if that makes you feel old or that you're still in the game. <laughs> this is the ninth governor that you've covered. Let's just go around and do a quick scorecard. We did this a couple of months ago, but now that he has 100 days under his belt, what are your thoughts? Well, sometimes it's better to have good instincts than good intentions. And I think the way that McKee has presented himself now is like he's one of us. We've known him for a long time in Cumberland. He reminds me a little bit of Joe Garrahy and Link Almond, who were two very successful governors. And he's also lucky that there's money because the pandemic, luckily, the federal government has come through with some money and the pandemic could have been a much bigger problem than it has been. And what's happening for him, and this is not unique to Rhode Island, this is true all over New England, is that our vaccination rate is pretty good. It's in the mid 70 percents of the two better states than us, both run by Republican governors, by the way. Uh, Phil Scott in Vermont, they're around 82, 83%. And Massachusetts is about 79 or 80, where they have a Republican governor, Charlie Baker. So if you look at the public health aspect, which is obviously the number one priority right now, I think uh, McKee, so far, is doing pretty well. Lisa? Yeah, I have to agree with that. Um, I, I'm, he's growing into the job, and I've been watching him do that over the past number of months. I think when he first started, he had almost that deer-in-the-headlight type of look that he wasn't used to having the spotlight on him everywhere he went. And I think as lieutenant governor, he would go out and about. Now as governor, he usually has a contingent with him, not only his you know, some staff support, but a lot of media following him, too. Um, he seems to have a good relationship with the leadership of the General Assembly. Um, he reached out to them. They seem to be meeting every single week. They're going to have a fundraiser for him later today. I really think the sun, the moon, and the stars lined up for him because, as you said, coming in, coming out of the pandemic, we have the vaccine rolling out. We have a surplus in the budget. We have a billion dollars coming in from the federal government to work with. So uh, things are lining up for him right now. It seems like a very long time ago that before he was governor, remember he talked about getting all the teachers vaccinated. And that was a that was a bit of a misstep and, and public officials. And that seems like so long ago. But I'm also interested in 
some of the legislation that's been passed because, and you've talked about this, I read one of your uh, things the other day, it seems, he seems like a moderate guy, but then he's a little bit of veering to the left, and I wonder what you think about that. Well, that's the nature of uh, being an election year coming up and the governor's race already starting in earnest, and um, that the fact that uh, in order to win in a Democratic primary, he's going to have to move to the left, and I think that's a little bit disappointing to the people who expected him to be more of a, a moderate Democrat as a governor, and that's something to watch out for, and that's part of the problem with having the Democratic supermajority in the state of Rhode Island, is that these decisions and these elections happen in the primary in September before anybody are really in uh, political mode and thinking about that type of thing. So if you are somebody who are looking for a more moderate candidate, uh, you need to get out in the Democratic primaries. Otherwise, he's going to be continued to push further and further to the left to uh, appease that progressive agenda. One thing that strikes me, and this is a big change, is that it seems that he and Lieutenant Governor Matos are like, you know. At the hip. Yeah. They are. They're just really together on everything. And, and he was on, honest enough to say that when Governor Raimondo was in there and he was Lieutenant Governor, that they barely had no relationship at all. And this is much more like what you see with Charlie uh, Baker and Lieutenant Governor Polito in Massachusetts, where, you know, their press releases come out together, you get their schedules together. Of course, they run together. We still have this crazy system in Rhode Island where the governor and lieutenant governor are often of different parties. And that's not, I don't think, a great way to do it, but it's the way our Constitution prescribes. And I think to Bill's point, Yes, if you look at that Democratic primary, uh, it's a pretty liberal yes. voter. It's a pretty liberal electorate, and it's much more concentrated in the eastern uh, urban parts of the state. Uh, the Blackstone Valley, Providence are very, very important there. Uh, Newport, East Providence has Cumberland. Uh, you look at some of those communities, and uh, there's some pretty liberal places in there. And I think that you look like people like Cicilline, uh, some of the folks who've been successful in Democratic primaries have been from the left side of the party. The other thing, though, to Billy's point, is simply that, yes, there's a supermajority, but whose fault is that? I mean, the Republican Party, you know, we were on with Brian Newberry, have him on. He'll say, you know, if the progressives would come over with us on some of these issues. But the problem is the Republicans are still leaving, you know, 40 percent of these uh of these legislative races unopposed. We will get to that a little bit later on because we're going to talk about party building. Lisa, it's interesting, though, because you can't really pin McGee down. Early on, think of the the, uh, the Climate Act, the, the yes. Act on Climate, whatever it was, the, the Green New Deal for Rhode Island to a lesser extent. It went right through and he signed it, right? But then he still has said, hey, this charter school moratorium, I'm, you know, I'm not so wild about. So it's kind of hard to pin him down where he is politically. Yeah, he's had a little bit of a pass. I think we've given him that three-month honeymoon, and he really hasn't been challenged yet on any of the major issues. And there are a lot of major issues coming up. So when we're talking about the governor's race, you know, where we are today, June of 21 versus where we'll be next year, there's going to be a lot coming up. Um, I've been waiting for him to have to make some hard decisions. So you, you mentioned the charter school bill. Will he veto that before they adjourn at the end of the session? Uh, and then there's already talk about returning in the summer or perhaps in the fall, and will the General Assembly veto it? There are other big issues, and we'll, I know we'll get into the Providence school system. So he has a lot of challenges ahead right now that he's going to have to face, and I think we're really going to see where he truly stands in the coming months. Yep. 
It's a mixed bag because uh, obviously the climate change bill was an important bill that would look very bad if he voted against it when he came into that uh, Democratic primary. Uh, he was a, a champion for charter schools when he was mayor of Cumberland and his time as uh, lieutenant governor. As lieutenant governor, he was a big, big champion for small business. So it's a little bit surprising that he's looking to uh, tax the PPP funds uh, for small businesses, which the uh, CPAs are very upset with. So it's really, again, I think you have to put it all in the light of an election uh, cycle and who he's going to be up against in the the, uh, the primary for sure. Well, let's talk about that. Nelly Gorbea is out of the blocks. Yeah. We expect Seth Magazine or Jorge Alorza, who's got money, how that all shakes out in a year. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Nelly getting in quickly. Kathy Gregg had a story just a week earlier that said it's basically a two-person race. So I think she needed to feel like she needed to get in. What do you look at in this snapshot in time? Well, I think uh, Secretary Gorbea got in because she needs to raise money. And this is a real imperative for her. You have somebody like Magaziner, who has very strong ties to organized labor and has about twice as much money as she has already. He's over a million dollars. And I think she needed to get in there quickly to ramp that up. Now, the other side of this is now everything she does is going to be viewed through the prism of running for governor. So anything she does, people are going to say, well, it's just Nellie Gorbea running for governor. I think is that a good thing or a bad thing for her? It can, it's, it's a two-double-edged sword kind of thing, you know. I mean, a lot of the stuff her office does is really ministerial. You know, she keeps the records, keeps the archives. If the dust builds up on the archives, I don't see how that's, you know. <laughs> Groundbreaking. Well, the yeah. big thing she did was the uh, the special election, especially the, the referendum that right. we had in March and then the uh, mail ballot initiative that happened at the last election. So it's actually a good time for her to announce because she has the uh, cachet and the, the visibility right now uh, in the general public. So if she gets in the race now, she can hopefully capitalize on that and, uh, you know, ride that all the way till the next Election. But I think we have to be honest, to Lisa's point, uh, there are some landmines out here for uh, the governor, particularly the rich tax. And this tax on wealthy people, you know, this is a lot easier to do in Massachusetts than it is in Rhode Island because Boston has the kind of economy uh, with the VCs and the biotech and all this stuff where you can't really go anywhere. Where are you going to go? Uh, the people who already want to beat their taxes have moved to New Hampshire. But Providence, we, if we get our tax structure too far away from Massachusetts, something Governor Almond I know always worried about, then we give incentives to people who live in Barrington to go to put their business in Seekonk. Right. I'm not sure we want that. Yeah, I think it's trying to measure the, the weight or the power of the progressives in the General Assembly on both the House and Senate side. And we've already seen the minimum wage bill get passed. So that, that's that. The climate change that you mentioned, another issue that the progressives, is that going to be enough to go forward, or are they going to keep pushing on this tax? Now, Governor McKee has already said this is not the time to be raising taxes. Again, we have that surplus in the budget. We have the federal money coming in. Why do we need to be taxing that and really harming our business climate? That's going to be another change, you know, challenge for him going forward. We're getting through COVID. We're getting people vaccinated. We're trying to get some businesses going, but. We've, I think the COVID pandemic really showed the weakness in our service industry, the, the uh, dependency that we have here in the economy. What's, the, what's going to be the industries that we're going to bring in to really invest in our economy so the next time something happens that hurts us, that we'll be able to come out of it sooner? Well, that's a hundred-year problem we had. <laughs> I mean, look, it's lovely uh, that Rhode Island has such a great foodie culture. I think we all enjoy it. And they're small businesses, but yes, they're very vulnerable. About 80,000 people earn their livings in the restaurant 
and hotel business in Rhode Island. That's a, you know, a big chunk. And in the summer, we see all these folks coming here. In fact, some people in South County aren't real happy with all the Connecticut and New York plates they see in the parking lots to the beaches. Yeah, but, but that's been 35 years that's been that way. <laughs> it seems a- like it's cheaper <laughs> over here. All right, let's, uh, let's shift over to the legislature. We are heading into the home stretch as it's June. The big thing is when is the budget going to come out a little bit easier this year because the budget figures look better. I sat down with uh, Speaker Joe Sicarci last week. You have uh, heard him talk about the budget in last week's show. Talked a little bit more about the issues in part two of my interview. He started with the budget and then rolled into a couple of things. Here's part of my interview with him. I want to use that money to help Rhode Island in the long term. I don't want to look at it as a short-term fix for one two-year budget cycle. I want to look at it, what can we do to change the structural deficit? What can we do to make an investment that benefits people for the long term? Pot's probably going to get put off until the fall of next year, right? I'm still keeping an open mind. There's a lot of competing plans with a lot of competing issues. It will be hard to accomplish that in the next three weeks. But we'll keep you an open mind. But you're right. If it doesn't get done, we'll certainly consider it hopefully later this year. You anticipate keeping the car tax phase out on the original schedule? Yes. Right now, that's part of the governor's budget. And I will tell you, enjoy strong support in the House. What about gun legislation? There's always a host of it every year. It's very much under consideration. I have met with the Second Amendment people. I have met with the um, Moms Demand Action. I've met with Linda Finn. I've met with both sides. Um, they're not, believe it or not, I mean, they, each, each side may not uh, admit this publicly, but they're not that far apart on some legislation. They're very far apart on other legislation, but there's some stuff that there's not that much of a bridge to gap. So I think that you may see some gun legislation. I just don't know when and what. Uh, but that's something that I would do with the governor and the Senate and talk about with them. So the game plan is always to get out before the 4th of July, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done between now and then. Billy, let me, let me start with you. It's interesting. Gun control is something that's come up every year. We haven't had the huge throngs at the Statehouse that's been outside, and I know there were dueling press conferences. I wonder if there is going to be some movement because we have a different speaker this year. Well, I think that's something that's come up. Uh, you know, there was the, the, flop, the, the flip that uh, Dan McKee had where he kind of thought the bill was already signed, and uh, <laughs> right. that was a little bit of a confusion. But it makes you wonder if uh, some of these bills are a bit of a foregone conclusion that uh, they have the votes in the House. They don't have the opposition to be able to get into the State House and talk to the legislators uh, as they normally would because they have the State House closed. Uh, it's something that is concerning in the idea that, uh, you know, with everything that's going on with the COVID and the lockdown and the Zoom meetings and the public hearings being restricted and uh, it, the fact that they're passing so much legislation, it seems to me like this should have been signing a bill every day, right? This should have been a year where they took care of the basics, cleaned up after what happened with the pandemic. And it seems like they're just using it as an opportunity to get their their pet legislation through uh, under the not a lot of public scrutiny. And that's just not a, a good thing to do for our elected officials. You know, I think I have to remind everybody, if it was just the Republicans against the gun bills, when you look at the composition in the House and Senate, they should have been passed like on the first day. So the, even though the speaker's not there and he was one of the you know bastion walls making sure certain bills like the gun bills weren't go forward, even with Speaker Mattiello gone, there are a lot of Democrats, people who have D's after their their you know their standing to that are against gun legislation. So I think that's the wall that they're hitting up against right now. I think there's some real naughty problems if you look at education. The Providence schools are a mess. We know this. This thing's been fumbled, and I know the pandemic had a lot to do with it. There's also a Governor Raimondo's Promise program, which is fine, 
as far as it relates to CCRI and the two years of free schooling. But what it's done to Rick, it's really hurt Rhode Island it's College. decimated them. And uh, their enrollment is way down because of that. I think this is, you know, the path to good intentions is paved to you know where. And, and, and this sounded great. Uh, and it's fine for CCRI, but you just wonder in the long term, does this hurt a place like Rick? And what does it do in the long term to even the University of Rhode Island? Well, it's it. Go ahead. And then so what's interesting about that, and I've been watching this too, and you have the Speaker Sakarchi saying it, we don't want to uh, start investing in new programs or use this money to put into new programs that will be perpetual going forward, like the Rhode Island promise for CCRI. So there is a bill pending to have a scholarship for Rhode Island college students. Then you have the president of URI saying, and if you do that, well, like us? you said, yeah. to do that. So yeah. are, are, where's going to be the discipline with the General Assembly leadership and the governor to make sure we're not spending money on programs that need to be funded year after year? And then, year of course, the year. same people will complain when URI takes more out-of-state students to get higher tuition. I mean, there's just no easy answer to a lot of these things. And I think, as you point out, uh, we didn't really think all of this through. As for, Again, well-intentioned. There is an easy answer. Stop subsidizing. Stop having the government get involved with education of our, our children at the higher level. You know, if they hadn't failed the children through K through 12, there would be no need for this uh, additional two years of college. So it's something that, you know, these unintended consequences is something that's a perennial problem when you're dealing with the government uh, influencing the market forces and creating a opportunity for there to be problems that, you know, nobody can foresee. That's why the, the market is the best way to resolve those issues. Joe Sicarci talked about this last week. He said he was very con cognizant of the fact about those out years and that we can't just look at the COVID money because in 23, 24, 25, all these programs, but I don't see the discipline. I, I, I did a story three or four years ago on the General Assembly, how much it spends on itself. And I looked at the Rhode Island budget. It goes up about a billion years every four years, every one term of an, and that's unsustainable. Where are we going to be 10 years from now if we don't at some point hold the line? And they say, oh, it's only going up 2 or 3%. We have federal money to backfill. What, so that's the concern, right? Um, absolutely. So again, it's th this money's coming in, and unlike the uh, stimulus money that we receive under the CARES Act from the federal government, we had to spend that by the end of last year. The money that's coming in, we have two or three years to spend it before it expires, before we have to give it back. So where's the thoughtful leadership happening, coming to Together to say, what do we need to be doing here? I know that, uh, Speaker Sakarchi referred to the Rhode Island Foundation or Brown, uh, Bryant University, but where is the collective group coming together to say, here's the plan? And uh, we've heard Governor McKee say he, ha he has a 2030 plan, so I'll be interested to see where, what that mean, you know, where that will lead the state and what the investment will be needed to make that happen. Well, obviously a big, big force here is how quickly does the economy rebound because that generates the revenue. It's the private sector that generates a lot of this revenue once you get past the federal money. And hopefully we can put the money into one-time things that will help. Right. Investment, not spending. Right. right. And I think that infrastructure obviously is one of the big things. And you look around at taxes and you wonder somebody like Amazon paying no taxes. I get where Joe Biden's coming from. Who uses the roads and the airports more than Amazon to deliver their stuff? And for them to pay zero taxes is pretty much ridiculous. Before we move on, let me just ask you, uh, because we have you on, congratulations. Uh, I don't know if it's condolences or congratulations. <laughs> congratulations. Uh, Billy has been elected chairman of the, the new chairman of the uh, Libertarian Party of Rhode Island. Party building. Yes. We talk about this every year. We talked about the Republicans. Scott, you can just stay out of this conversation. <laughs> the Democrats are fine. Um, 
so you're a year out. Talk about your emphasis in terms of trying to recruit people to run. It's a tough sell these days. It, it is a tough sell. I think there's this, uh, this idea that uh, if you're not running as a Democrat in the state, you can't get elected and, uh, that, or you don't really have a shot. Uh, that's not really the point. Uh, to uh, Scott's point that he made earlier, there's so many races in the state that are running uncontested that even if you put a candidate in there, uh, they're taking resources and forcing those people to actually campaign. If you compare in the East Bay, for example, uh, the election of Sue Donovan and my race with June Speakman compared to Jason Knight, who ran unopposed, uh, there was a lot of ability for Jason to raise money and not have to spend it on his campaign and also to help out uh, other candidates that actually have viable races. So the opposition, which could be libertarians, it could be Republicans, it could be independents, the more candidates we get into the field, the more resources we take away from the Democratic machine. And, you know, hopefully we can win some races and and build upon that. But to your point, it's a difficult sell to get people. And I think uh, that's going to be my primary goal as chairman of the party is to try to get people to run for office and to get volunteers and membership to help support those candidates. I think there are very passionate people out there who do want to do community service and in, or serve in the public service, too. So, you know, I congratulate you on your efforts, um, you know, working in the Republican Party. I can tell you, you got a long hole, you know, <laughs> you know road to hoe, you know, going, going ahead. I just feel like, for me, it's a dinosaur. I feel like I'm a dinosaur to have a moderate Republican. I was heartened to see Ed Fitzpatrick's story this week about potential candidates for general treasurer and former mayor of Cranston, uh, Alan Fong might be running again. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe we would have a Republican back in, in the general office. But I think it's going to be a long time before we see a libertarian in the general office. Well, it's it's a process. you got to build upon it. It's something, you know, every, Journey of a Thousand Steps uh, starts with one step. So uh, you need to make sure that it, it's something that, uh, you know, working with uh, Susanke at the Republicans, uh, you know, doing some type of strategy, maybe dividing up the state into, you know, say libertarians will take these districts and Republicans <laughs> will take those districts. But it's something that, uh, you know, we need to, if you're upset with what's going on in the state house, you're upset with the, uh, the myopic vision and the, the, the single voice that's up there, you need to step up, run for office. And that's just, you know, if you, you can't complain about it if you're not willing to do anything Isn't about a lot it. Of it is throw the bums out, but I like my bum, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, because when it comes right down to the ballot box, it's the familiar old Democratic shoe. It is, and it's that way in Congress, where the incumbency rates. Everybody hates the Congress. Mark Twain, they're the only, country's only native criminal class, but re-election rates are ninety percent or more. And I think these are friends and neighbors races. Uh, people ask me, "What would you do?" I said, "Buy three pairs of sneakers, okay?" Because it's door to door. Coffee clatch, that's the kind of thing that you do in small endorsements from unions or fellows at the Portuguese club, whatever, you know, your district has. One thing I see the Republicans have never been that strategic. They should look at every Democrat who got elected with less than, say, 53 or 55 percent and go in there. Surgically. And find and recruit good candidates to do that. The problem is right now is I don't know how this is going to evolve, but there seems to be a group of Trump folks in the Republican Party and people more like Lisa uh, who are from the moderate side of the party. And I don't know if that's never the twain shall meet or who they could put out for a gubernatorial candidate, but we know that moderate Republicans can win statewide in Rhode Island. It's happened before. And we just don't see the energy on that side of the party anymore. The energy in the Republican Party, for better or worse, has been on the conservative side recently, in the same way that the energy on the Democratic Party has been with younger, 
progressive folks and some uh, minority folks. What about that? Yeah, no, actually, I agree with you, Scott. And, you know, oh, God. <laughs> I know. So, you know, here we are. But again, I just feel like there are so many voters that as soon as they see an R after a candidate's name, regardless of where that person stands, they just don't have a comfort level here in Rhode Island to vote for them. Hmm. So there's a long way to go here. Um, well, I, that's the, the problem we have with libertarians. Uh, people, I, as I always say, they think I'm a librarian. <laughs> else, so, uh, but the, the idea is, is that you need to have the farm team. You need to get the, I think part of the problem with the Republican Party in the state of Rhode Island is they tend to throw all their eggs in a basket for higher office, for governor, for Congress. You know, they need to focus more on getting the General Assembly, the town council uh, seats filled. And, and that's what um, my role is and my goal is for the uh, Libertarian Party is to get those lower races filled so we can have a farm team. And then we also reduce the taboo of people going to the ballot box and voting for a Libertarian or Republican yeah. for those lower offices. You know, what's interesting has been the realignment here. If you look at a place like Burrowville, where years ago it was town council was all Democratic, now it's majority Republican. And the Trump vote the same way. You, we used to look election nights, people like Jim and I sitting in the Journal newsroom, how's Barrington and East Greenwich going? Because they're the big Republican. Now you look at the demographics. Barrington, I think, voted for Biden almost at the same level as Providence. What's happening, Scott? The world is turning upside <laughs> down. Uh, well, I think the Trump factor, it is a whole, that's a whole other discussion. Let's uh, do outrages or kudos. Lisa, what do you have this week? You know, so I was hoping to do a kudo this week, but then this issue that just keeps coming in the news, it's just been so disturbing to me. It's the verdict that happened this week down in um, South Kingstown in district court for a woman who was charged with disorderly conduct for verbally uh, accosting a black family outside of the Coast Guard house um, mm. last year. Uh, so she was convicted and it's going, she's going to appeal to the Superior Court, and um, our Attorney General wants to uh, in, uh, include the hate crime enhancement mm -hmm. when it goes there. But I've been so disturbed by this because, one, the woman is a, is, is a physician, so a highly educated woman doing this. Then we learned today, we're taping on Friday, that she's not licensed here in Rhode Island. She's, she's a, not a practicing doctor. Uh, I really feel for the family um, on this. So that's been my outrage, is watching this whole um, issue unfold. Billy, what do you have? So my outrage is Donald Trump's 20%, I mean, I'm sorry, Gina Raimondo's 20% tariff on lumber that she's proposing. And as if housing prices aren't high enough, we have uh, the affordable housing. Has she not been to Home Depot well, recently? Come on now. So as someone who works in the insurance industry and we deal with replacement cost values and, and increasing construction costs, I always say that they're going to start delivering lumber to job sites on Brinks trucks pretty soon yeah. uh, because it's just been going through the roof right now. And for her to propose something like that, which is, again, it's a, the tariff seemed to be a, a Donald Trump type uh, uh, tax plan. So this is something that just is, uh, you know, new boss the same as the old boss. You got to whack Gina Raimondo and she's not even a governor. <laughs> <laughs> you got a double bonus on that. Scotty, you have the last minute. The last minute? Well, I am going to say that it's about time that Rhode Island got with the marijuana protocols and we're losing revenue all the time to Massachusetts, which is getting tax revenue from sales of marijuana. And we should get our act together and do something similar in Rhode Island instead of just dragging it out. And the other kudo I had was for AG Nerona, who did step in on this latest hospital thing with charter care. And I think we need more oversight of the hospitals, particularly since the taxpayers are now footing through Medicare, Medicaid and other programs more than 60% of the revenues of hospitals. So I'm It looks like, and the speaker you heard in his soundbite, it looks like they might be coming back in the fall for, for a marijuana 
But, sure. I mean, among other things, right? But I don't know why it's taken this long. Well, I, I think it's competing plans between the, uh, the Senate president, how to distribute it, right? I understand that. But you think they could have gotten their act together already since Massachusetts is ka-ching, ka-ching. They've been collecting taxes now for quite a while. Or you could just go to your dealer, Scotty, right? <laughs> you cut out the government altogether. I'm too Folks, old. that is, <laughs> that's, we'll leave that off the record. Uh, folks, that is all the time we have. But you know what? It's not over. We have one other huge issue that we didn't talk to talk about on the broadcast. We're going to do our online bonus segment, Lively Extra. So go right now to ripbs.org lively. We'll be back with this panel momentarily. For the rest of you, come back here next week as we head into the heart of the end of the legislative session. We'll have it all covered for you as Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS.